On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. All righty, Pastor Mark here, continuing our meaningless life study in Ecclesiastes today. We're talking about your stuff, your Savior, and your satisfaction in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. Um, it's election season. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, class conflict, it's back on the front burner. Yes, the, uh, the debate between the rich and the poor, which is constant, really increases during an election cycle and season. And it is common for each side to villainize the other side. So those who lean politically left will paint a caricature of the rich as greedy, unscrupulous, godless people who rob the poor, rig the system, oppress the needy without any regard for the well-being of others. Think, um, think Scrooge. Uh, those who lean politically right have the opposite view and tend to paint the poor as lazy, unmotivated uh, takers and freeloaders who elect politicians who will fleece the hardworking rich through taxes and give their hard-earned money away who to those who did not earn it and do not deserve it. Think of uh, uh, basically thievery and stealing and crookedness and, and a rigged system where uh, a lot of people are getting a lot of money from the government, and so they vote in elected officials who will then steal through the legal form of taxation from the rich. I don't think I've overstated the case. No, this sermon is not primarily political. It will very quickly get biblical. But do you feel the tension? Do you understand it? Let me ask you, do you lean politically to the right or to the left? If you lean polit politically to the left, you think, well, the poor people are the good guys and the rich people are the bad guys. If you lean politically to the right, you're more inclined to think, well, no, the poor people are the bad guys and the rich people are the good guys. Think of an old Western an old movie script where somebody's got to wear the white hat as the good guy and somebody's got to wear the black hat as the bad guy. If I just gave you two categories, okay, the rich and the poor, who gets the white hat? Who gets the black hat? This constant cantankerous, contentious contending is always going on in the political arena and it particularly increases uh, when there's an economic downturn or upturn or an election cycle, and we're in the middle of all of that on a great and grand roller coaster right now, at least in the United States of America. And this conflict is so deeply rooted in various Western cultures, including my own, uh, that even Christians get drug into the mudslinging and the name calling. The truth is, you can cherry pick Bible verses to support both sides quite easily. And that's exactly what happens with left-leaning poverty theology and right-leaning prosperity theology. In poverty theology, being poor is a sign of godliness because you do not care about worldly things and are content due to your heavenly-mindedness. In poverty theology, the portrait of Jesus is as a poor carpenter, a peasant, during his years on the earth in humility. And so it's a kind of homeless, broke Jesus. In prosperity theology, conversely, being rich is a sign of godliness because God has blessed you with a lifestyle that is more akin to the one you'll enjoy in your eternal heavenly home where the streets are lined with gold. In prosperity theology, the portrait of Jesus is as a rich king seated on a throne in his heavenly kingdom in unparalleled opulence and glory with a legion of angels at his beck and call, like his personal staff, ready to enact his wishes and serve his glory. In poverty theology, it is a homeless peasant, uh, flat broke, can't pay his taxes, uh, crashing on somebody's couch, Jesus. In uh, prosperity theology, it is bling and rims and, you know, entourage, 
uh, rolling out of the limo uh, to the screaming, adoring fans, Jesus. What does the Bible say? Eh, that's a good question. In fact, for us Christians, that's, that's always the question, right? The truth is, like I just said, you can cherry pick verses where it says that rich people were blessed of God in the Bible. You can cherry pick verses that says that poor people were blessed of God in the Bible. You can cherry pick verses that show Jesus had less money than anybody. You could pick other verses that would show you right now today, uh, Jesus ain't cutting coupons. Amen? So what's the Bible say? Well, when it comes to the rich and the poor, we need to think biblically and not just culturally or financially or politically. Do you hear me in that? Especially you young guys who think that, hey, I'm broken homeless, I'm like Jesus. No, maybe not. Maybe you're just a leftover lazy hippie. For those of you who are rich and you say, God, God blesses and loves the rich, you gotta ask yourself, how did I... How did I get my money? What's my heart toward my money? How much do I tithe of my money? How generous am I with my money? Am I rich like Jesus is right now in heaven where, where his whole goal is to serve and give and bless and provide for those in need? Are you like that? Well, if not, then you're not like Jesus either. So let me offend everybody so that we can all get on the same page. And that page is Ecclesiastes 5 in verses 8 through 20. And the truth is, the Bible is far more concerned with how you got tithes spent and shared your wealth than how much money you make. To say it another way, the Bible is more concerned about your righteousness than your riches. And so when it comes to culture, there's two basic categories, the rich and the poor. But when it comes to the Bible, there are not two categories. There are, in fact, four. Some of you have heard me teach this before. Um, it's incredibly important, and so we need to address it again. There are two kinds of rich and two kinds of poor, according to the Bible. Not just two kinds of people, but four kinds of people. Let me start with the first category, two kinds of rich people. So think of rich people, and I don't know what rich is for you. Rich is always somebody who's a, a couple income levels ahead of you, a few rungs uh, on the ladder above you. So whoever, whatever you consider rich, get them in your mind. Now, let me tell you, the truth is there are two kinds of rich people. There are category one, unright the righteous rich. So let me correct that. Category one, the righteous rich. Category two, the unrighteous rich. Category number one, the righteous rich. Can you think of anybody in the Bible who is righteous? They love God. They got their wealth in a godly way. They tied to the Lord. They paid their bills. They cared for their family. They gave to the poor and needy. They were generous, they were righteous, they were rich. Can you think of anybody in the Bible who was godly and rich? I can. Just off the top of my head, sitting here at the house while the kids are at school, the dog swimming in the pool. Dog loves the pool. Can't figure out why. Nonetheless, as I just think about it, I can think about uh, righteous rich people in the Bible. Remember a guy named Job? He had everything, then he had nothing, and then God gave him everything again, and he was a very righteous man. Abraham was another guy, very righteous and rich. In the New Testament, there was a gal named Lydia. She was righteous and rich, and she funded a lot of ministry. A righteous and rich woman. How about if you met the Lord Jesus today face to face in his heavenly kingdom, streets paved with gold, ruling and reigning over all creation, seated on a throne without any lack, want, or need, a banquet served at the wedding supper of the Lamb in his honor and glory where all the nations come and the tab is picked up by King Jesus. He's righteous and rich today. Second category, the unrighteous rich. Can you think of people in the Bible who are unrighteous and rich? The way they got their money, tied their money, spent their money, shared their money, not godly, ungodly. There's a lot of those. Sometimes these are uh, affluent political leaders like the, the pharaohs in the Old Testament and the Herods in the New Testament. They live in great opulence and power, but they're, they're unrighteous. They're ungodly. Proverbs talks about people who steal from others and they tr try to... Um, you know, pad their accounts and overbill for their hours. And these are the kind of people who run high interest loans toward the poor that are in need. And they're always 
looking for a way to take advantage of somebody when they're down or hurting or struggling. These are unrighteous rich people. The way they get their money, shady. The way they, they don't tithe their money to the Lord. They don't share their money with the poor. Uh, they don't invest their money for the future. Uh, there are ways to get rich that are ungodly and be rich that are ungodly. That all, this also includes people who get their money and they spend it all on godless things, all kinds of wrongful sexual behavior and addictions and drugs and and all kinds of things that are just unholy, ungodly, and unhelpful. So there are two kinds of rich people. There are also two kinds of poor people. Category three, the righteous poor. Category four, the unrighteous poor. Category three, the righteous poor. Can you think of any people in the Bible just off the top of your head that are both righteous and poor? Well, obviously, while on the earth, that's the Lord Jesus. That's his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph. They were righteous and poor. When it came time to offer a sacrifice at the temple, they couldn't afford the big fancy sacrifice, so they had to take the provision made in the law for a lesser sacrifice because they were a poor family. They were a poor family. There are people who are righteous and poor in the Bible. There's a widow comes and she gives her might. She ties to the Lord, but that's all she's got. She's got very, very, very little money, but she's righteous and she's generous and she trusts the Lord with it. There are a lot of times in the Bible that God's people are poor. The Israelites are walking around the wilderness waiting for God to show up and give them food every day. They're poor. They're poor, but they're God's people. There are people that do belong to the Lord and they're poor. And some of those people are sometimes also righteous people. Proverbs talks about the righteous poor, those who don't have a lot of rights. They go to work every day. They, they work hard to feed their family, and, and they just are struggling to, to eke out an existence. Another one that comes to mind in the Old Testament is the great story of Ruth. She was a poor widow during a famine, and she is out gleaning in the fields, which is the equivalent of going to the food bank or dumpster diving in that day just to feed herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth is righteous and poor. Category four, the unrighteous poor. Can you think of anybody in the Bible who is unrighteous and poor? They're poor, but it's not because they're godly. It's because they're ungodly. They're unwilling to work. Proverbs talks a lot about the sluggard. The person who doesn't have anything because they won't go to work. They have this sort of entitlement mentality, like everybody's supposed to come around and take care of them, or, or the nanny state is supposed to be like their mom who looks after them. The unrighteous poor in Proverbs include people who try to get rich quick. They're, they're like gambling, sometimes literally. This is like the guy who gets his paycheck, goes down to the casino, and then he's flat broke a half an hour later, and he's poor, but it's not because he's righteous, it's because he's foolish. I grew up in a home that I would say was category three, righteous poor. My dad was a union drywaller who hung sheetrock to feed five kids until he broke his back feeding his family. My parents never put anything on credit. They paid cash for everything, and we just could stretch a dollar out as far as could be. My mom stayed home to take care of us five kids, and we were in a poor neighborhood. And my family was righteous and poor, and in how they handled their money. There were other families around us that were righteous and poor, first-generation immigrants just pulled into the United States, starting at nothing, working hard to make ends meet, trying to get their kids into college and get a career started. These are some hard-working families that pulled together. You'd have two, three, four generations living in one home, everybody working as hard as they could to pay the bills, and they'd eventually buy another house and another house and another house, and the family would all pull together to get everybody set up. And these people worked hard and they didn't commit crimes and they didn't waste their money. And there were some very godly people who loved the Lord. In addition to my neighborhood, there were also a lot of category four unrighteous poor. Guys who are hustling, gals who are hustling. They're dealing drugs. They're involved in prostitution. They're in gangs. They're stealing. They're robbing people, trying to win the lotto and get rich quick and hanging out at the casino. And as soon as they get some money, they run out and buy stupid things like a big car with rims or a bigger TV. 
and there's no investment, there's no saving, there's no tithing, there's no stewarding, there's no planning. There's just a lot of ill-gotten gain and, and misspent wealth. It was unrighteous. And Proverbs talks a lot about that as well. People who don't have anything because they're foolish, because they're sluggards, because they chase get-rich-quick schemes, because they don't give to the Lord, because they, they don't make a plan. Two kinds of rich, two kinds of poor. Why do I belabor this point? Because I think it's so commonly overlooked in our culture. And I'll tell you, man, I've dealt with younger generations and the sense of entitlement is absolutely incontrovertibly over the top. And the result can be that uh, just because you're poor, you feel like you're Jesus and maybe you're not. I've also been to places where Man, people are rolling, things are going incredibly well, and they really don't give much to the Lord, and they don't care much for the poor because they've created a world in which uh, their needs are met and they're insulated and isolated from the pains and the poverty of others. And I think it's incumbent on us, particularly in the season that our culture's in and the election cycle, to really think biblically. Two kinds of rich, two kinds of poor. Righteous rich, unrighteous rich, righteous poor, unrighteous poor. So that biblical framework sets us up for Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. Herein, we find all four categories of people. Why did I belabor that point? So we could think biblically and not just culturally, politically, or financially. He's going to start in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, verses 8 and 9, dealing with two kinds of people, the righteous poor and the unrighteous rich. He says, don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried through the land. For every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Sound familiar? where there's just an angst, a mood, and it kind of ebbs and flows, where there's just anger against establishment and career politicians, as if everyone is corrupt and everyone's on the dole and everyone is taking. We're there again. Jesus is a king who rules over a kingdom where there are no taxes. That, friends, sounds pretty heavenly. Amen? Sadly, until we get Jesus' kingdom, we're stuck with politicians who love what Solomon calls red tape and bureaucracy because he knows, and he's a king, so he gets this from the top of the Ponzi scheme. His view is real clear. But the reason he says that governments love red tape and bureaucracy is because it allows all their cronies to get their hands in the cookie jar as the cookies pass from the overtaxed rich to the hungry poor. So we take the cookies from the rich and we're going to give them to the poor. But along the way, every step of government makes sure that they get a cookie for themselves. And so there aren't a lot of cookies left by the time it works itself down through the food chain. Again, Solomon is a king over a great kingdom and he knows how this works. The result, he says, is that people are, quote unquote, oppressed. And I would tell you, this includes the rich and the poor. What he's talking about is governmental systems in which we take more from the rich than we should, and it doesn't really get to the poor anyways. And so the rich and the poor are both being taken advantage of and ripped off. This is why sometimes, as people understand this, they get to a point where they're just frustrated and they're angry. Because sometimes raising taxes does not raise the quality of living for others because the taxes that are raised are spent before it ever gets to those in need. This is why Solomon says, quote unquote, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. See, when you see this kind of corruption, as Christians, we understand crooked people running a crooked system never pave a straight road to the kingdom of God. They just don't. Crooked people with a crooked system don't pave a straight road. That's the way it works. It doesn't mean it's okay, but it means that it is. What it means is that under the sun, there is no perfect government there because every government has the same problem, and that is people run it. And as long as you have sinful people running a system, it doesn't matter how good or bad the system is, it still will not be good. It still will not be godly because ultimately it's governed by people who are sinners by nature and choice. And, and what we truly ultimately eventually need, we need a king with a kingdom. We need a king 
who is benevolent. We need a king who doesn't take from us, but gives to us. We need a king who we can trust. We have a king who is all about caring for everyone and not just those who voted for him. And we need a kingdom in which the resources are stewarded by this benevolent king for the well-being of all. So everyone who's gotten frustrated, everyone who's put a, a political bumper sticker on their car, called into talk radio, uh, made some sort of political statement online or, or went into a voting booth, ultimately underneath that frustration, that, 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 that anger, that angst, that longing, that desire is really an appetite for the Lord Jesus. That's what you want. Ultimately, you want the Lord, and it doesn't even matter if you don't know the Lord Jesus, ultimately the longing that you have is only satisfied in him. And he, until he comes back, until the elections are no more and all of the agencies go away and all of the special interests are gone, right? And all of the taxes are ended and everything belongs to the one loving, good, gracious, benevolent king who loves and cares for all of his people forever. Until we get there, it's just going to be painful. So don't be surprised. He then transitions to the unrighteous rich. Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to you to spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Well, let's just be honest. You need money to live, and so the Bible is not against money. The Lord of heaven and earth thinks it's fine for you to eat, feed your kids, get your kids an education, and uh, for your kids to have a warm bed to sleep in. Making money is not necessarily a sin. Having money is not necessarily a sin. Money is in itself, like a hammer, quite neutral. You can use a hammer to make a living like my construction worker dad did, or you can use a hammer to bonk someone over the nugget. The hammer is never the problem. The heart of the person wielding the hammer is always the issue. So it is with money. You can worship with your money by tithing generously, caring for your family, investing, helping those in need. So you can worship with your money, but you can also worship your money. You can worship with your money or you can worship your money. Jesus says you can't worship God and money. That's what he says. Now, the Bible never speaks poorly of money, but it always speaks poorly of the quote-unquote love of money. Here in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon says uh, that it's a real bad thing if you have a quote-unquote love of money. And Paul says, you know, in the New Testament, we're not supposed to have a quote-unquote love of money. And that those who love money fall into all kinds of grief and trouble and trauma and strife and pain. The love of money means that your heart and your hope are in your wealth so that your identity, your comfort, your joy, and your security are in your bank account. That means that they're not in the Lord. That means you're saying, if a, if a hard time comes, I'll be okay because the money in the bank will save me. If I need something, it's okay because the money in the bank will provide it. If I want people to like me and love me and know me and esteem me, that's okay because the money in the bank can purchase that from the car that I drive to the clothes that I wear and making sure that the right person's name is on my underwear. If you love money, here's the problem. It's become your functional, functional God, no matter who you would say your actual God is. On our money, it says, in God we trust. And for some, it should say, in this we trust. It's not a problem to have money, but it's a real problem to love money. It's not a problem to worship with money, but it's a real problem to worship money. My question is, is money your actual functional God? You may say, Jesus is my God. No, but is money what drives you, what motivates you, what um, gives you peace, what gives you comfort, what gives you security, what gives you identity? If so, uh, your God is mammon. It's a hard prophetic word from a loving God who wants us to really examine our hearts, including my own. As a kid, I can remember watching cartoons. I don't know if you ever saw these. There would be people out in the desert, and in the distance, they would see something that appeared as a watered oasis, sort of an Edenic paradise. And what people would do, there was this, this held-out hope and longing that, that this Edenic watered paradise could be theirs, this oasis, if they just 
made the long journey toward that place. And so they would make the long venture across the desert. And you know the story as well as I do, at least in the old cartoons. What happened when they arrived there? They discovered it was a what? What's the word? Sip of water, it was a mirage. Unlike the water I just took a sip of, when they got there, there was no water at all. Just desert, just sand, just desolate, just death, just despair. In many ways, our lives are all lived with a mirage on the horizon. For us, we set our gaze on a home, a vacation, a state of being, a lifestyle, a relationship, a car, a debt-to-income ratio that to us looks like Eden on earth. And if we could just get there, then we would live our own little heaven on earth, our own little Edenic oasis. Well, how do you get there? Well, to get there, you spend money. You burn resources. The only problem Solomon says, and here's the guy who's got more money and lives at a more lavish lifestyle than arguably anyone who's ever lived in the history of the world, right? He would have Warren Buffett and Bill Gates over and feel sorry for those guys because of their lifestyle and income level. The only problem is this, Solomon says, even if you do somehow burn enough cash to get that proverbial spring in the desert, you end up realizing it was just a mirage. What Solomon tells us is uh, he's the richest man and he has everything he's ever dreamed of, but he's unhappy. He's unhappy. He's unhappy. This is the sad tale of, never, uh, of nearly every rock star and world-class athlete who's ever been honest enough to tell us how they so quickly went from bling to bankruptcy. Some of the richest people are some of the most miserable people. Some of the most affluent people are the most suicidal people. Uh, some of the most adored people are the least happy people. Some of you say, man, it would be different than me. I was listening to a country western song recently, and uh, you know, it says, uh, some would say money can't buy me happiness, but it can buy me a boat and a truck to pull it. And he starts talking about, you know, Money may not buy you happiness, but it buy me some stuff that might make me real happy and I'm willing to make a shot at it. I'm not saying it's a sin to have a boat or a truck to pull it. What Solomon is saying is it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't buy happiness. You can't. And part of the reason, he says, is the more money you make, you realize that the world is filled with pickpockets in the form of double-crossing spouses and their shady attorneys Crooked accountants, lazy staff members, freeloading relatives, and tax-happy uh, government officials who want you to fund their mirage. Right? As soon as you stack up a little pile of gold, it's gone once the looters have had their way with your loot. That's what Solomon says. He says, you know what? If you have this image of this mirage you want to get to, and you're trying to raise enough cash to make the journey toward it, uh, you probably run out of cash before you even get there because everybody's going to be taking their portion out of your pocket. And even if you do get enough cash to get to your mirage, to buy that house, to get that car, to be in that relationship, to take that vacation, to have that experience, to, to obtain that staff, he says, once you get there, you're still not happy. Take it from the guy who has it all and went to Costco and couldn't find any aisle that had happiness for sale. Moving right along. You having fun? Before the Bible can encourage us, sometimes it needs to discourage us. Before it can give us hope for our future, it needs to give us reality, a reality about our present. Before God can give us a great vision for our life, sometimes he needs to crash the illusion that we had. And that's what he's doing here. He moves on by talking about the righteous poor and the unrighteous rich. Ecclesiastes 5, 12 through 15 Here's what he says, people who work hard sleep well. A lot of people don't sleep well. Whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom gets a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I've seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives, he says, as naked and empty-handed, as on the day we were born, we can't take our riches with us. 
Here's what he's saying. The righteous poor work a long, a long, hard day on the job. They come home to eat whatever's in the fridge and then they go to bed. But they sleep well because their conscience is clear. Their conscience is clear. They did not rip anyone off that day. And like Jesus and his carpenter dad, Joseph, they did not overbill their hours or pad their expense report. According to the Bible here, a clear conscience is priceless and cannot be bought for any amount of money. Those with a clear conscience can live with themselves and they can sleep good at night. Conversely, he talks about the one who hoards wealth. Have you ever seen one of those reality television shows where they go into the home of the hoarder? Uh, those shows are incredibly sad and shocking as you see that people's thinking has become irrational. They gather things they will never use until those things overtake their life and cause them misery. So they don't own their stuff, their stuff owns them. Solomon says that some people are cash and stuff hoarders. They stack up more money than they will ever need, buy cars that they rarely drive, purchase vacations homes they don't have time to visit, and have bedrooms in their homes that no one ever sleeps in, filled with televisions that no one ever watches. Solomon rightly says that you and I, we came into this world naked and with nothing in our bank account. And when all is said and done, and our trip around the cul-de-sac that is life comes to an end, we find ourselves where we started, naked, without any credit cards, off to Jesus. That's how it's going to end, friend. You cannot take it with you. And if you try to stack it all up while you're here, he says, good luck trying to find a safe place to put your profits. If you make a lot of money, where are you going to put it to keep it? It's hard to be a hoarder with your money. Real estate markets crash. Investments go bad. The stock market can turn faster than the mood of a hungry infant. And like termites, termites in a wooden house, the longer you keep your cash stacked up, uh, the more and more people just start eating away at it, starting with those you elected because you were hoping that they would find a way to reduce your tax burden. As soon as you got a pile of money, anybody who knows about it is going to try and get a little bit into their pocket. So what should you do? Well, here's the answer. You should make your money, but you should tithe it to God because that's a good eternal investment. Jesus says you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead if you store up your treasures in heaven. You can use your money to pay your bills, take care of your family, invest a bit wisely, and, and then be generous to others, starting with your wife, husband, kids, parents, grandparents, those who are closest to you. If you're able to do this, you'll get to see the joy that your generosity brings. One of the things I, I've never really understood is sometimes hoarders will even wait, financial hoarders and stuff hoarders, they'll wait until they die to disperse their assets to their kids. That doesn't make any sense. Man, if your kids are getting married, they're having kids, that's the hardest, most difficult, expensive season of life. Why not give them some of their inheritance now? Why not give them the extra car now? Why not give them the stuff now so you can watch them enjoy it and make sure that it actually gets to them before somebody else gets it from them? That's why those dumb bumper stickers, have you seen these? And if you've got one, I apologize, but it is dumb. It says we are spending our kids' inheritance or the other one that says we're spending our grandkids' inheritance. should also say because we're foolish, greedy hoarders who never read the Bible. It doesn't make any sense. What Solomon is saying is, uh, what good does it bring to spend your whole life getting money and stuff and then not having anybody to share it with or give it to or to love and bless and serve through it and then everybody just takes portions of it and then you die and leave it all and can't take it to heaven anyways. It's sort of pulling back and asking, what the heck am I doing and is this a good plan? He then moves to the unrighteous poor and the unrighteous rich. He's talking about those who are ungodly, uh, whether they have little or much, Ecclesiastes 5, 16, and 17. And this too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Boy, ain't that the fact, Jack? Number one category is pre prescription medications, at least in the U.S., antidepressants says it's like living life under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. You know why? The world needs to change. 
you know what's frustrating? Never changes. Never changes. The world needs to change. I mean, can we all just agree something's gone wrong? Anyone who's ever cast a vote for a politician, honked a car horn, complained, or just wept knows this is true. The world needs to change. And the unrighteous poor do little to change the world because they're lazy, sitting around like grown babies with a sense of entitlement, waiting for some responsible adult to come and change their diaper, make their dinner, and pay their bills. Yeah, the world is a bad place. Somebody needs to come and take care of me. This is the thinking of the unrighteous poor. Their contribution to the world registers a zero on the Richter scale of value. They're like barnacles on the boat of the state, just along for the ride. Their counterpart, the unrighteous rich, also contribute nothing to making the world a better place. They're takers, not givers, users, not servers, and just like leeches, spend their days sucking the blood out of anyone and everything that they can find. This is a clear reason why God is not for every poor person or for every rich person. What he's saying is, whether you're rich or poor, you should try and make a difference in this world and help somebody else. And the unrighteous poor and the unrighteous rich, they're not concerned about others. They share one thing in common. Their unrighteousness means that they're absolutely self-centered, self-seeking, and self-serving, which is not God-glorifying. Man. Solomon's brutally honest, and the Bible is the most honest book ever written, and Ecclesiastes is perhaps the most honest book in the most honest book that's ever been written. He then ends with the righteous rich and the righteous poor. Here's a little hope. He leaves some good news for the end. A, a, a little hope for us all. Having crashed all of the other mirages, having brought reality to all of our illusions, having eliminated our options, he then says this in Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. Even so, I've noticed one thing at least that is good. He says, oh, hey, well, we're at it. There is one thing that's good. It is good for people to, drum roll please, you ready? You ready? You ready? Eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps so, uh, such people, rather, he says, so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. Here's the question. What's the answer to a good life here under the sun? That's the question. Answer, live a righteous life with God by grace. See, as sinners, each of us has a debt to God that we cannot repay, which is why there is a debtor's prison called hell. It's where all the people who don't turn to the Lord Jesus have to go to pay their debt forever because they've sinned against an eternal God, which is an eternal debt. Now, thankfully, the Lord Jesus came from glory and riches to humility and poverty to pay our debt to God. Jesus forgave our debt to God by dying in our place for our sins. He picked up the tab. Upon rising from death and returning to heaven, Jesus is now preparing a place for us as our king in his kingdom. It's awesome. In that place, Jesus' heavenly kingdom, there will be people who in this life were rich and poor. Until we get to that place, we are to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, a new life of righteousness, whether we are rich or poor in this life. Well, then the question is, what does a righteous, God-glorifying, kingdom-preparing life look like? It's really curious. What we're into now is an issue that is one of holiness. Righteous living, life with God, life like God. And depending upon which tradition of Christianity you are most familiar with, there's a punch list that immediately ensues around the discussion of holiness that some committee a long time ago put together as a checklist. I'll give you an example. 
So if you're a Baptist or you're from the Wesleyan tradition, which includes the charismatic and Pentecostal churches, well, to be holy means you do not drink alcohol. So that's the list. Go over and check. I do not drink alcohol. Check. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm living a God-honoring life. Now, what's curious, there's a totally different list. If you're Lutheran, Catholic, or Presbyterian, you go over on the list, it says, well, if you're righteous, you will drink alcohol because you have your freedom in Christ and the Lord Jesus made alcohol and he drank alcohol. And then those from the Baptist and the Wesleyan traditions would say, no, 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 he made grape juice. And then people grab the Greek text and next thing you know, the scholars come in and it's a total meltdown and nobody's living a very godly and righteous life because we're arguing about Greek words rather than enjoying one another's company. Anyways, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to living life um, under the reign of King Jesus and in preparation for the kingdom of Jesus, uh, Solomon here, the great sage, right? There's prophets, priests, and kings, and here Solomon is functioning as a sage, a wise man. In this section, he gives us a little punch list of eight things that mark a God-honoring, God-glorifying, righteous life, something that can be attained whether you are rich or you are poor by virtue of being forgiven by Jesus and made righteous and living a new life by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God and to your own joy. Here's the list. You ready? Give you time to get a pen. Eight things. Here's what a righteous life consists of. And here's what you're going to find. It's really practical. It's very earthy. According to the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, James, wisdom is all about the practical stuff of life. It's about your pots and your pans and your pains and your pleasures. It's not just a heavenly mindedness. It's an earthly rootedness. And here's the list. You ready? Number one, eat. Eat. Everything went sideways when our first parents ate without God. So you should eat with God. This is why we say grace before a meal. This is why we sit down and eat together as family and friends. This is why 1 John says don't have you know heretics and apostates into your house to eat as friends because we're supposed to eat with those who are lost to invite them to Jesus. We're supposed to eat with those who are family and friends to encourage them toward Jesus. We're not supposed to sit down and eat and pretend that we're close to those who undermined all the work of the Lord Jesus. Think about it. Jesus comes to earth and he eats meals with people. He's at Mary and Martha's house. Uh, one of the most famous moments in all of history is the Last Supper where the Lord Jesus sits down to celebrate the Passover and there are his friends, and there is his Judas. Upon the resurrection of the dead, the Bible says that there will be the wedding supper of the Lamb, and all of God's people, rich and poor, will sit down. There won't be a, a, a first class and a worst class. There'll be all of God's children sitting at the same table together. There won't be a VIP room in the kingdom of God. Everybody will be treated well by the God of grace, and we'll eat together. So as we eat, friends, we eat with Jesus. We don't eat with Satan. We eat with God's people. We don't eat with those apostates and enemies of the gospel who have made it their life's ambition to lead people astray and to do harm to the people of God. We eat slowly to enjoy each bite. We eat knowing that we're preparing for the kingdom of God. We eat in anticipation of the day when we sit down at the table of the Lord Jesus and we eat to make friends and to have fellowship and to make memories. And, and this is whether you're poor, right? Sitting down with a few buddies, having chicken nuggets, or you're rich at a great five-course meal at a five-star restaurant. It's not just about eating. It's about eating as an act of worshiping to God's glory and our joy. And I don't want you to feel bad if you sit down and eat a nice meal. I'm blessed to have a wife who loves to cook and a daughter who loves to cook and they're an amazing they're amazing cooks we sit down and eat dinner as a family you know we eat to god's glory and our joy 
Number two, he says, drink. Not supposed to get drunk. The Bible says that very clearly in multiple places, including Ephesians. Do not get drunk. Couldn't be any clearer than that. What do you like to drink? Drink it to God's glory. Drink it as an act of worship. Cold glass of water, warm cup of coffee, fresh cup of tea. Yeah, obey the government, obey the laws, don't sin, don't cause others to stumble, don't glory in your liberties. But if you and your wife love Jesus and your kids are tucked in bed at night, you decide you just want to sit up by the fire and have a glass of wine, who am I to judge? Eat, drink, he says, enjoy your work. Now, you know what? Work tends not to initially be enjoyable. That's why they pay you to do it. That's kind of the difference between work and a hobby. A hobby, nobody pays you to do it. Like nobody pays me a hobby to watch college football, take a nap. I got to do those things on my own. I can't get paid for them. Work is what people will pay you to do because they know unless you're paid, you won't do it. Hobbies are things you'll do for free because you enjoy them so much. What he's talking about here is trying to find a way to enjoy your work. You may say, man, I need a new job. Maybe you do, I don't know. But as long as you got that job, maybe you need a new attitude. Maybe you need a new perspective. Maybe you need a new attempt to try and find a way to make that job enjoyable. Is there anything you could do to make that job enjoyable? That's what he says. You got to go to work. So first of all, if you're able to find a job that you like, that's a double blessing. But is there a way to take the job you have and find a way to enjoy it by infusing God's presence and purposes and pleasures in it? I don't know what that looks like for you. The Holy Spirit's going to need to show that to you. Number four, here's a big one. Accept your lot in life. Well, he's talking here about satisfaction. He's talking about contentment. Accept your lot in life. Maybe you're rich. Maybe you're poor. I don't know. Maybe you're smart. Maybe you're not that smart. I don't know. Maybe you're really funny. Maybe you're not funny at all. I don't know. Maybe you're tall. Maybe you're short. Maybe you're thick. Maybe you're skinny. I don't know. Maybe you go to a great college. Maybe you flunked out of clown college. I don't know. Accept your lot in life. Maybe you live in a big house. Maybe you live in an outhouse. I don't know. Accept your lot in life. Maybe you drive a nice car. Maybe you ride the bus. I don't know. Accept your lot in life. That's what he's talking about. He's not taking, talking about, you know, taking away your preparation, your planning, your preparing, you're trying to improve yourself, you're trying to improve your family, you're trying to improve your circumstances. He's not giving us, uh, you know, some sort of hopelessness where nothing can ever change and you shouldn't aspire to be or do more. But at some point, you got to accept your lot in life. Just got to say, this is who I am and who I'm not. I'm going to be 45 here shortly and I'm kind of coming to that place. It's midlife, like, this is who I am, this is who I'm not. And this is my lot in life, and it is what it is. And to accept it and to say, you know what? Man, if I aspire to more than God has for me, I can't handle it anyways. It's probably just going to break me. It's like putting a load in a truck that was never intended to carry. Eventually, it just breaks the axle and crushes the vehicle. Man, God's loaded you up with what you can handle. Be okay with that. Accept that. Don't take on more than you can handle, and don't take on less. Accept your lot in life. God, what's the load you've asked me to carry? I'll go ahead and carry that. No less, no more, and I'll be content with that, and I'll accept that, and I'll find satisfaction in that. Number five, he says, make money. It's not a sin to make money. We talked about it. You can worship with your wealth, or you can worship your wealth. He says, go out and make money. I would encourage you, go out and make money, and then when you get it, use it righteously. Tithe to the Lord. Pay your bills. Take care of yourself and your family. Invest for the future. Help the poor. Give to those in need. It doesn't really matter how much you make. It really matters how much you keep. That's kind of the issue and how you use it. One of the ways we love people is through generosity and through giving. Somebody's hungry. You can walk up and say, I really love you. And they're like, then give me a, a sandwich. Single mom struggling to make ends meet. Hey, I, I love you and I'm praying for you. That's awesome. Why don't you give me some groceries? Answer your own prayer. And sometimes not only are we able to pray for people, God has given us the ability to answer those prayers through money by providing for the needs of those people that we've been praying for. And it's awesome. It's joyful. This is why the Lord Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And God has given more than anyone. Is, and that's why God is more joyful than everyone. He's a giver. Number 60 says, enjoy your health. If you can have good health, praise God. 
You can eat your vitamins and exercise and extend the quality of life. He says, enjoy your health. If God's made you healthy, enjoy that. I mean, I'm just glad to be alive. I'm glad to be walking around. I'm glad that I can go out and throw the ball around with my kids and go for a walk holding my wife's hand. Boy, if you're alive and God's given you health, he's saying, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Don't take the health and the life that God has given you and spend it so focused on your misery that you forget to really live your life and enjoy your God. Number seven, that's his whole point. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. For some of you, you have been told that if anything is enjoyable, it's probably not godly. Well, if you can enjoy your life in a God-glorifying, God-honoring, um, God-serving way, then praise be to God. Some of you, you don't enjoy your life and, and the misery that you're under, it's not that the Lord has given that to you, it's that you've given it to yourself. You've taken on obligations and debts and responsibilities and, and pains and miseries and endured relationships that the Lord has not asked you to. You've done that, not him. I know some people, they intentionally deny themselves enjoyable things in life as if uh, less pleasure made you closer to God. I, I don't believe that at all. I believe God is a loving and good father and he likes to give good gifts to his children. I'm not teaching prosperity theology. What I'm saying is, is that if God gives you something to enjoy and you don't enjoy it, that doesn't make you holy, that makes you unholy. It's like a dad who buys a bike for his kid and the kid refuses to ride it. And the dad's looking at the kid going, I just want you to ride the bike. And the kid's saying, no dad, because I want to suffer and be miserable so that I could be more grateful for the things that you provide. And the dad's shaking his head going, what a weird kid, ride your bike. I know some people, they intentionally make their life painful. I'll tell you what, Jesus already died on the cross for your sins and you making a little pain for yourself doesn't add to it. It's already taken care of. There are weird ways that sometimes people will punish themselves to atone for their sin. That's ungodly. If Jesus already died and was punished, why are you punishing yourself? If, if God wants you to be a loved son or daughter and enjoy your life, I, I don't care if you're rich or poor, young or old, black or white, married or single, employed or unemployed. If you have a father who loves you and wants you to enjoy your life, I would encourage you to seek him and ask how you can do that and to not feel guilty or bad about it. The Bible says, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I tell you, when you get to the kingdom of God, it's not going to be a lot of pain and misery. It's going to be a lot of joy and generosity. Because that's the heart of God. He's good. You know, I grew up poor, working class poor. Like I told you, my dad was a construction worker and stayed home. My mom stayed home to feed us five kids. I remember enjoying my life. I had a simple bike. I loved riding my bike. Sometimes I'd have to go mow lawns to buy a baseball glove and cleats, but I enjoyed playing baseball. Um, I remember uh, we didn't have a lot of sporting equipment, but the kids would get together and we'd play football. I remember enjoying throwing a football around. I remember when Grace and I were first married, we were flat broke. And we would do our dates at the laundromat because the little place that we rented didn't have a washer and a dryer. We could have sat there in the laundromat and we could have commiserated and complained about how poor we were and couldn't afford to go out and college broke, newly married. And, um, and instead, we brought board games to the laundromat and we'd hang out together and find a way to enjoy the laundromat. Enjoying your life has a lot more to do with your attitude than your income. That's what I'm saying. And number eight, um, you ready? It's amazing that he saves this for um, last. I, I find this pretty remarkable. You ready? It's, it's hugely important. Basically says the key to your future is to get over your past. 
not going to get too much into my recent life, but this is a timely word. He says, uh, God keeps such people, verse 20, so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. All right. My kids are at school. I'm uh, sitting here in the desert, all by myself with a dog barking outside at something. And uh, it's just you and me. So I'll just pretend you're sitting here with me and we're having a little chat. And I would ask you, what's the first thing on your mind when you get up in the morning? Is it a hurt from your past or a hope for your future? I would ask you, because uh, I'm a pastor and I love people, What's the last thing on your mind when you go to bed at night? Is it a hurt from your past or a hope for your future? So oftentimes we spend our time thinking about the hurt from our past or the hope for our future that we completely miss the present. We're so worried about the person who hurt us yesterday or the person that'll hurt us tomorrow that we overlook the person in front of us today. We're so frustrated by the opportunity we missed yesterday or the opportunity we're trying to capture tomorrow that we missed the opportunity that's in front of us today. Hurt, pain, grief, bitterness, loss is very painful and it's very real. But at some point, You've got to move on from it. You need to forgive whoever for whatever. You need to hand them over to the Lord and let the Lord deal with it because you're not in the position to function as the Lord. You need to heal up from it because it might be a wound to your soul. And just like your body needs to heal... You don't have to. You are forgiven for everything you have done if you belong to the Lord Jesus. You can forgive anyone for anything through the power of the Lord Jesus. You can leave them in the hands of the Lord Jesus and you can move on with your life and enjoy it. Not just endure it. Enjoy it. It'll change the way you eat and drink and work. It'll help you accept your lot in life. It'll influence and affect your money, your health, your relationships. It talks about brooding over the past. Some of you are archaeologists. You're always digging up the past to just inspect it and look at it and brood over it and obsess over it. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Some of you nurse every hurt and every wound, but the Bible says it's a glory to overlook an offense. Some of you cannot stop replaying a day, an event, an experience, and what you're doing is you're haunting yourself. Why do you brood over a past you cannot change? Why do you brood over a past that has already passed? None of this is in my notes, and I wasn't planning on going here, but I just feel inclined in the Holy Spirit to tell you that the key to your future is to stop brooding over your past, that forgiven people can be forgiving people, that hurt people can be healed people, that 
um, that that the God of the Bible cares far more about your heart and your righteousness and your relationship with Him and the and the depth of your joy than He does your bank account. You may be thinking a lot about your money, and and God wants to turn your gaze to think about Him and you and your heart and your joy and your eating and your drinking and your working and your satisfaction so you can make your money, enjoy your health, live your life, and stop brooding over your past and get on with your future. In this life, dear friend, pain is inevitable, but misery is a choice.